The book of Genesis ends with the story of Joseph. Joseph being the youngest and probably most favored son of Israel. His brothers are jealous. They beat him up. They throw him in a pit. They bloody his clothes, tell his father that he's dead, and they sell him into slavery. And Joseph doesn't end there. His, his suffering doesn't end there. He, he, he goes through more suffering. He goes to, he becomes, he's sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar tr- uh, sees that Joseph is a wise and, and trustworthy man. He gives Joseph more and more responsibility to where he has control over all of Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife finds him attractive. And she comes on to him. And he, he has to flee from her. It's so intense, the her coming on to him, he has to flee from her, and she's basically ripping his clothes off as he's running out the door. And Potiphar blames him and throws him in the prison. And then he's in prison. And he has these, these, there are these, these uh, people in prison with him, and he has dreams about them and gives them the dreams. The dreams come to, to, to pass, and he says to the one who has a positive outcome of the dream, remember me when you get out of here. The guy forgets and leaves him wallowing in prison. And then finally, Pharaoh has a dream, and no one can interpret it. So Joseph's called, and he goes, and he interprets this dream about seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And he's then exalted to this high place, second only to Pharaoh himself. And then his brothers come back in the scene, and they, they, they probably assume he's dead by now. They don't know what's happened to him, and they don't recognize him as he is. But they come back on the scene, and all these things come to pass to where Joseph is faced with his brothers, recognizing who he is, and they're thinking, we're dead. <laughs> you know, little brother should wipe us out because of what we've done. And this is what Joseph says. Joseph says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about it as it is this day to save many people alive. It's amazing how God will take what, what people mean for evil, how God will take what demonic forces mean for evil, and he will turn those things around for good. It's amazing how he can do that. It wasn't just Joseph's family, the 75 people that made up that small nation, that seed form of a nation, Israel. It wasn't just them that were saved because of Joseph's action. All of Egypt was saved because of Joseph's action, because of what God did through him. Now we are in Nehemiah 4 seeing these guys making some good progress. We, we talked about that last week. They celebrate, they're celebrating the progress that they're making as they're rebuilding the walls as they are the, the, the sort of means to fulfill a prophecy that God would return his people to Jerusalem and that they would, Jerusalem would be restored and they would live in it. And they're part of that prophecy coming to pass. And as they make progress, though, as they continue to make progress, there is an increasing of opposition. And this is the biblical pattern. This is what we should expect as God's people. As God continues to show us who He is and grow us in that knowledge 
and teach us to love him and teach us to love others, we should expect there's going to be a growing opposition. That, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in, in heavenly places, the scripture says. And these beings, these demonic beings, want to keep us from knowing the God who saved us. They want to keep us from being effective for the God who saves us. It's a principle. Increased progress always leads to, or often leads to, increased opposition, but that also develops an increased faithfulness. What the enemy means for evil, God in his sovereignty turns around for our good. The enemy attacks us, God turns it around to grow us. We have to see this. One of the reasons that we give up, one of the reasons that we, we just want to throw in the towel and say, forget it, I'm done fighting the good fight. I don't want to build the walls anymore. I don't want to be involved in this restoration project anymore. We give up because we forget that no matter what the enemy comes against us, God is in control and he's going to turn it around for our good. That's a promise. And in fact, it's ironic because with the enemy's attack, what we say is, forget it, I can't handle this attack anymore, so I'm going to give up. That's the whole point of the attack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wants us to give up. And so we see this exemplified in Nehemiah 4. We see this opposition to the restoration project happening, and it shows us a lot about how we should be really responding when the enemy comes against us. So I'm going to give you three things. You should have a little piece of paper that has these three things on there about how we can resist this opposition. What do these guys do? Look at verse 1. So we have here, we have Sambalat and his lot again. They're accusing uh, God's people again. They're mocking God's people again. Sambalat doing this with the army of Samaria. He, there's an idea here. He's wanting to be intimidating. Remember, the people that are there in Jerusalem, these are sort of a remnant people. These are really a weak people. They're people that had been sort of in captivity or had been so poor and considered so of little value that the, you know, uh, the, the conquering nation just said, we'll just leave them there. And this is their ancestors. So these are, this is the kind of the weakest of the weak, the remnant. And here they have this... this person who's saying that they are weak, pointing out their weakness, and doing so as that, that, that mockery echoes off the sound of thousands of troops. Weak, feeble, usually poor people here in this mockery in the presence of this intimidating army. And this is what the enemy does. He constantly wants to intimidate us. In fact, some of the things that they're, they're saying here, he's saying here, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? The kind of idea there is they're already offering sacrifices, but the idea there is what are they going to pray the wall up? Is that what they're going to do? I don't know if you've ever been mocked for your faith. I don't know if you've ever had someone say something to you like what I heard once when someone said, well, you could always ask Jesus for help. And you feel that, and, and there's a part of you, there's a part of you when you hear that, that kind of goes, well, maybe I'm foolish to believe. That's the enemy lying to us. 
And this is exactly what Sambalat's trying to do to the nation of Israel. In fact, when he says, are you going to revive stones? There's an interesting verse. I didn't, it's not going to be on the screen, but it's in, I think it's in Haggai chapter 3 that talks about where the prophet Haggai, when the, the temple's being restored, he says, listen, God's going to take these stones that maybe aren't that great, and he's going to use them to build his temple. So the answer really is, yeah, they are going to use these rubbish stones, and it's going to work. The point is, their enemy was continually opposing them. And we have to know that as we continue to make progress, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, as we seek to help one another be restored and be made more like Jesus, we, we should know there's going to be continual opposition. We're never going to get to a point where we just go, ah, now I can cruise until Jesus comes back. We, we need to know that. We need to be ready for that. So what do they do? Nehemiah ignores the, the enemy here. He doesn't, he doesn't address Samblat this time at all. And instead, what does he do? He prays. But specifically, he prays what we would call an imprecatory prayer. Now, I, I'm using that kind of unknown word on purpose just to help it sink in your head. Imprecatory. What does that mean? It literally means to, uh, it's, a, it's a prayer that means to call down judgment. It's a call down, God judge, God judge. It's an imprecatory prayer. We see these out throughout the Psalms. And they're a tricky thing to handle theologically because we know that Jesus talks about loving your enemy. We're going to see that in a minute. And so this is interesting that here, when the enemy comes in, Nehemiah leads his people, leads God's people in an imprecatory prayer. God bring judgment. But this is what he's doing. What he's really doing is he's looking for God's justice. He's saying, Lord, you're going to have to sort this out. You're going to have to sort these people out, and you're going to need to do it justly. And we need to get our heads around this. Because we do read Jesus telling us how to deal with our enemies, don't we? Now again, Jesus is writing this in Matthew chapter 5. He's not talking about demonic enemies, so I don't want to be, get too confusing here. He's talking about human enemies. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, But I say to you, he, he's answering the question that you've said, love your friends, hate your enemies. He says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And this is why. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So Jesus says, okay, here's the deal. When you have enemies, people coming against you because you're following me, here's how I want you to respond. I don't want you to call down curses. I want you to call out blessings. I want you to pray that they're blessed. I want you to pray that good happens to them. I want you to reflect the character of my Father to them. A Father who gives grace, common grace, to the whole world. Now, we have to understand there's a difference between the common grace here, the rain falling on the just and the unjust, and saving grace. But the, 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 there's, a, there's a reality here that common grace, an understanding of common grace, often leads to saving grace an understanding of saving grace. In other words, when we recognize the goodness of God, that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God, often that shows us, wow, this God is good. And in His goodness, I see 
I'm not. And I need Him to save me. I need His saving grace. Now, Jesus says this, but it's interesting. He also says, He tells a parable in Luke chapter 18 about a a widow who's crying out to a judge saying, hear me, bring me justice against my adversary. So she said uh, a widow was very, very much vulnerable in that culture, in that society. There was no one who was going to back her up. She had no husband or sons who could kind of defend her from being uh, ripped off or, or exploited. And so what happens is she goes to a local judge and she says, you need to help me. And the judge is like, I could care less, but this woman is driving me mad, so I'll help her. And Jesus is using this parable as something to point to how we should pray. Kind of a comparison. If he's the unjust judge, how much better are God who's the just judge? So he says this, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 18. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless... When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? What faith is he talking about? When Jesus says, will the Son of Man found faith on the earth, what faith is he talking about? It's faith that says, God, bring justice. Bring justice. See, we, we tend to tr- sort of want to grab on to just one of two sides of the same coin. Justice has two sides. There's the justice that we are praying towards when we're praying, as Jesus instructed us to pray, about loving our enemies, praying for them, blessing them. It's a justice that comes through justification. Justification means a rendering of innocence. That's what it means. So when we're praying, when we pray like Jesus told us to pray in Matthew 5, what we're praying is, Lord, These people are treating me bad, but I've treated you bad. They're my enemies, but I've been your enemies. You show me great mercy, Lord. Show them great mercy and bring them to saving faith. Help them not just to know the common grace that you are good to all that you've created, but help them to know saving grace. That you sent your your only begotten Son into this world that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Help them to believe that. We're praying for justice through justification. We're praying, God, would you save them? Would you, take, would you do for them what you've done for us? You've made your enemies your sons and daughters. Would you do that for those who have treated me bad? But also, listen, Jesus also affirmed the need for us to call for justice through judgment. Folks, let me just say something very simple, very common sense, and I hope this makes perfect sense to you because it makes perfect sense to me. There cannot be real real justice unless there is a final judgment. Let's think about the, 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 the villain that everyone loves to pull forth, Hitler. He committed horrible atrocities. Did he get his end in the end? No, he killed himself. It was over, boom. If there's not a final judgment. If there's not a final judgment, let's think about this. That sicko got away with it. Now, we go, oh, yeah, Hitler needs a final judgment. (laughs) But we forget all of us are going to face a final judgment. See, this is important because in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is praying these imprecatory 
prayer. She's saying, God, bring justice. These guys are your enemies. These guys are keeping the, the, they're, they're keeping the good news of who you are from being demonstrated. This is a, a wall around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place of your temple. Your temple is the place where you make your name known. And they're destroying your name. So Lord, destroy these guys so that others can be justified, can know your name. Now how does this apply to us? How do we pray for God's justice? We pray just the way Jesus taught us to pray. We say, Lord, we want to pray for enemies that they would become your sons and daughters. We want to pray for their forgiveness. We want to pray that you show them grace like you showed us grace. And we also pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your judgment come. We read the book of Revelation. We read through Revelation and this, this kind of judgment that God brings to the earth and it's scary, scary stuff. But what do we read at the very, very end? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why? Because we're sadists and we want to see bad things happen? No, just the opposite. We, we are longing to live on earth where righteousness dwells, and that can only come when God's justice comes. I think the reason we push back on this is twofold. One, we want judgment against our enemies, and we want to act like we're already completely just. Oh, yeah, Hitler needs a final judgment, but not me. I'm a good guy. This is the way we tend to think. But the truth is, as, as Paul plainly says, says, right, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. All of us. All of us are worthy of the judgment of God. The scripture talks about in John chapter 3 that he who, he who believes will be saved, but he who does not believe is condemned already. You're already in a place of condemnation if you don't believe in Jesus. It's not like God's saying, I'm going to judge you because you haven't believed in Jesus. God's saying, listen, I'm going to judge you according to your works, according to how you've responded to who I am and the standard I've set. I'm just going to judge you according to that. And if you judge according to that, you're in big trouble. We all are. The thing is, we need to recognize that only God can bring ultimate justice. So even with these difficult imprecatory prayers, these calling down of justice, of God's judgment, we're, we're, we're recognizing, God, you have to bring this judgment. We, we need this judgment. But Lord, we're asking before judgment, let there be mercy. Let there be mercy. Paul, uh, the apostle, had a pretty bad experience with a guy named Alexander the coppersmith. And we have known nothing about him except for he was a coppersmith and his name was Alexander. But he did Paul much harm. I kind of picture in my mind this kind of burly guy who didn't really like uh, this new Christian sect. And basically when Paul comes into town, he slaps Paul around a bit and kicks him out of the, the city. And Paul says, uh, he did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. That's not very Christian, is it? No, it is. Paul's not saying, God, avenge this me. on this guy is saying, Lord, would you just deal with this guy? I leave that judgment to you. See, here's what Paul himself said in Romans chapter 12. Listen, he said, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. 
He says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. He says, beloved, don't avenge yourself, but notice, rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We pray God bring justice through justification. We pray that and we share Jesus with people so they can know that. Because we long for people to be saved. We long for them to know the mercy that we know. But we also say, even, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know the whole reason, the only reason Jesus hasn't come back yet, according to, to, to Peter, is that he's longing for all to come to repentance. Amen. That's, right. That's what he's waiting for. Now, they were looking for God's justice. If we're going to stand against this opposition we're going to experience, we're going to have to look for God's justice. Now, that doesn't just mean we kind of sit around twiddling our thumbs, we wait. We need to remain motivated and committed to the work. Look at verse 6. He says, so here's what we did. We built. We built the wall, the entire wall, and it was joined together up to half its height. Now, this is not a six-foot fence. This is a 25, 30-foot wall. So they're up to about 15 feet, which means it's, it's a lot more defensible already. So we built up the half its height, and, and here's why. Because the people had a mind to work. Some versions said the people had a heart to work, or the people worked with all their hearts. The point is, they remained motivated in the work. Listen, do you believe that the God of justice has justified you, that he's forgiven you? Do you, if you, if, do you understand that's the gospel, that's the good news? The good news is that even though we are guilty, God in his great grace, through his finished work of his son Jesus, can render us innocent when we put our faith in Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? Amen. It's amazing. No matter how messed up we've been, God can forgive us and, and finish a work he promises, or start a work he promises to finish, to restore us. He can justify us. He can save us. Do you believe that? Do you believe the God of justice has justified you even though you've been unjust? That's believing the gospel. If you believe that, then press on in the work. Press on the work of restoration. Press on on that work of us cooperating together to help each other become more like Jesus. Remember, he's restoring a people. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, don't just say, say you love, show you love. He says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And, and we need to do this, not lagging in diligence, but being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We need to be people who are, uh, people who are motivated to action. Why? Because we believe this God is a God of justice and we're looking for that. You know, listen, we need to understand this too. This affects our we're going to face judgment. Do you, do you realize that? You, you, as, you and I, who are believers in Jesus, we're going to face judgment. Not judgment of innocent or guilty. We've already been rendered innocent. But judgment of reward. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work has been built uh, on it, that is on the good foundation of Jesus, it endures, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as so through fire. Do you see that? There's a judgment that we face as believers. It's not a judgment of heaven or hell that's already been declared in Jesus, but it's a judgment of reward. You know, there's this great picture in the book of Revelation of where Jesus is, or where God's wiping away every tear from the believer's eyes. You know what I'm talking about? What tears were those? 
If they're tears of joy, why would we wipe them away? <laughs> you know, when someone's crying out of joy at a wedding and a celebration, they go, oh, stop that, stop, don't, don't cry. We go, yeah, amen, this is beautiful. What tears are those? I honestly believe those are tears of regret. I honestly believe, and God in His grace is going to wipe them away, but I believe it's very much like this picture that we've seen in this movie. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Schindler's List. But the last scene of Schindler's List, one of the last scenes with Liam Neeson, Schindler himself, Oscar Schindler's there, and he's surrounded, but he's about to leave Germany, he's surrounded by all these people that he's rescued. And as he sees all these people that he's rescued, and they're thanking him, he realizes he could have done so much more. He starts taking off his ring and said, this would have bought three more. And this, these cufflinks would have brought two more. And he realizes how little he's actually invested. Though he was used to do something radical in history. Thousands of people were saved from death because of his shrewd tactics. How much more when we see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, when we see God face to face as believers, are we going to go, oh, Lord... Why did I doubt you so, so easily? Why, did I, why was I so slow to commit? Why was I so slow to love? Guys, listen. The way we overcome the enemy, the way we stand against the oppression that we will face as believers is to look to this God of justice. God, you're good and you're right and you're not going to withhold any reward from those who faithfully serve you. It's amazing. He wipes away the tears and he still gives us a reward. <laughs> amazing. Now, we move on, and we're going to go really quick now. Not only did they look for God's justice, but they prepared for God's enemy. These guys were, were sober about what was going on. We see in verse 7 what happens, that Samblat and Tobiah are joined now by the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashtadites. And when they all heard that the walls being built, the gaps are being closed, they became very angry, it says, and they conspired together to attack. But what do these guys do? Nevertheless, he says, we made our prayers to God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. I love this. How do they prepare for the enemy? They just increase their vigilance. Right. <laughs> exactly, that's, that's what we mean. That's what I mean by that. They just say, okay, here's, here's it is. All right, we're going we're gonna to just do what we, we're supposed to do, no matter how big the enemy seems to be against us. This is what Peter talks about. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I've heard people say that this is, the enemy is like a toothless person. He can't really devour us. But actually, Peter says he, he wants to devour us. <laughs> he's not just looking to scare us. He's looking to consume us. And so we need to be those who are vigilant. We need to say, okay, Lord, we need to be praying. We need to be sober about this. It's not a coincidence, folks, that Saturday night you never get sleep. It's not a coincidence that you wake up Sunday morning and the last thing you want to do is go to church or someone gets sick or whatever happens. Why is it always on Sunday? It's not a coincidence. So we just kind of go, oh, well, that's kind of a, I guess it's just a hard thing. No, we, we pray. We intentionally get on our face and say, God, 
The enemy is going to come against your people. Would you help your people so that when we come together tomorrow, we're ready to bring glory to you and to grow together? We pray. Now, these guys were also aware of the enemy's devices. In verse 10, what we see, we see the, these from Judah, that Judah, this, uh, one of the Israelites, says, man, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubble, we're not able to build the wall. Now, it's interesting because Nehemiah already told us that the wall is halfway there. But they, they do have to work around this rubbish of the past. There's all this broken down old pieces of wall that they're having to kind of sift through and, okay, this is good for work, that's not good for work, and they're kind of tripping here and falling there. It's not an easy process, and they're tired. They're fatigued from past rubbish, basically. <laughs> and this is what happens to us. Sometimes the, the, the junk that we've done in the past or the stuff that's even, and I'm talking even as recent as yesterday past, just seems to keep us from moving forward. But not just that, of course, what they're, they're hearing about the adversaries, what these this guys who've conspired together, these nations who've conspired together, they hear that, oh, this is what they say they're going to do. They're going to sneak up on us and they're going to kill us. In fact, you have this group of Jews coming ten times. You can see these guys just kind of really kind of starting to freak out. Man, seriously, they're going to come upon us. We, this is going to happen. The past rubbish might have produced some fatigue, but the present threats were producing fear. Fear. You know, uh, I'm not a huge news buff. I do listen to a lot of Radio 4 and turn it off in frustration, but um, <laughs> listen to a lot of, I like to, I like to listen to radio news. You get that, snap, that kind of snapshot in two minutes, and so I like to listen to news. I don't really read a lot of news because it can be quite depressing, to be honest. <laughs> It can be really depressing. Now, I'm not saying that because we should be uninformed. I think as Christians, it's wise for us to be informed. We should, we should have an access to what's going on, have a finger on a pulse of what's happening in the world. But here's what can happen. We can see all the junk around us and go, everything's falling apart. And be overwhelmed with fear by what we're seeing. But this is not how God wants us to be. What happens in verse 13? In verse 13, Nehemiah says this, okay, here's what I did. I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall. That's the places where they're most vulnerable. And at the openings, and notice what he does. I set people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And, and I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the leaders and the rest of the people, don't be afraid. Here's what you need to do. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. In other words, listen, he didn't deny the seriousness of the attack or the, 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 the eventuality of the attack even. He didn't deny it. He just said, listen, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. The Lord has to be your focus. This is the only way we prepare for God's enemies. Because listen, if we look around at each other and go, we got this, that's not going to last very long. Because <laughs> we're looking around and go, maybe we don't got this. Maybe we can't do this. But when we look to the Lord... We know he has this guaranteed. Remember when Jesus was going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? I think it's John's gospel that records this, this bit. He goes into goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers are like, uh, we're looking for Jesus as Nazareth. And he says, that's me. Boom, they all fall over on their backsides. Just by saying, it's me. I am he. Boom. 
Jesus, us and Jesus is the majority in any fight. Amen. <laughs> He's the one who does the fight. We've got to remember him. Remember him. Remember him. This is what the enemy doesn't want to do. It's interesting, too. Nehemiah is, is putting these guys together in their closest relationships. So he's saying, I want you to be committed to your closest relationships, knowing wisely that that's where we're going to find motivation to fight the most, is in those close relationships. But he wants their confidence to be in the character of God. Don't get that mixed up. Don't say, I'm going to fight because God is good, and I'm going to be able to do that. I'm confident because I have these close relationships. Don't do that. Now, we, we are always kind of harping on you guys. Get to a small group. Know and be known. Relationships are important to the gospel. And we do not flinch on that whatsoever. But our confidence is not in those relationships. Our confidence is in the God of the gospel who motivates us to have those relationships. Because people are going to let you down. But we're going to fight together because we trust that God is who he said he is and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Interesting, talking about the enemy's devices and, and how he tries to attack. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 or chapter 2. He says, Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have uh, forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, he says, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order, notice, that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Do you know what the enemy wants to do? So he can attack God's people is to get us to be separated, to get us to not want to fight with each other or fight for each other, I should say. Exactly. And how do we overcome that? We forgive. And we forgive because we've been forgiven. So we, they looked to God's, for God's justice. They prepared for God's enemy. And lastly, they pressed on in God's work. They continue to be active. Look at verse 15. It says, And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that, that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Guys, we have a life, we have an eternity to celebrate. An eternity to celebrate what God's done. But we have one life to commit to the work. One life. These guys were committed to the work that God set before them of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They were trusting in God's sovereign intervention. They were trusting God worked us out. Yeah, the enemy attacked. We found out about the schemes. We could set the guard. And God intervened. God intervened. He's in control. Listen, you don't have to know what the enemy is going to do. You don't have to figure out the next thing that's going to happen, bad or good. You just need to trust that God's in control and is good. In verses 16 to 20, we see them implementing a really responsible strategy. He takes half the servants, Nehemiah does in verse 16. It says he takes half the servants. He says, okay, you guys do construction. The other half, you guys stand guard, basically. In verse 7, he makes sure, in verse 17, in the first part of verse 18, he makes it clear that, okay, everyone has to be prepared to fight, to work and to fight. So you got a trowel in one hand, you got a sword in the other. In the last part of verse 18 through verse 20, he, we see him, him saying, okay, I'm going to keep the guy next to me who sounds the trumpet that rallies people to, to battle. And I'm telling everybody, here's what has to happen. If you hear 
the thing, the, if you hear the trumpet blast, you need to come run this way so we can all fight together. We can all kind of help where the enemy's coming in. He's being responsible. Let me ask you a real serious question. What's your strategy for growth? Seriously. Do, do, you, do you want to be made like Jesus? How's that going to happen? Well, he, God's going to do it. Yes, amen. He's going to do it. How's he going to do it? Through the Bible, uh, prayer. Okay. How are you going to connect with Scripture? When are you going to read it? When are you going to pray? With whom are you going to pray? Uh, oh, yeah, I'll do, it. I'll do this. And, and through service, where are you going to serve? There's an intentionality that needs to be there if we're going to press on in God's work. We can't just go, yeah, mm, I'm stirred, I'm, and then not do anything. There has to be an intentionality. What, what, is, what is God calling us to do? What does God want us to do? We're always kind of waiting for this big, boom, picture, and saying, what's the step today? What do you want me to do today? He might have out some good strategy. But also, he made sure that these guys, that he, the people he, he himself and the people that he was leading, that everyone there was committed to one another's well-being. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, so we labored in the work. Half the men held the spears by daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem. So he's saying, those who were living outside the walls, he's saying from now on, stay inside the walls. Stay together. And for this reason, he says, that we may be uh, that they may be our guard by night and our work, working party by day. In other words, let's, let's commit to doing this thing together so we have each other's backs. So he says, Neither I nor my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes except that everyone took them off for washing. In other words, we stayed ready. We led by example, committed to this work. Listen, this is what God's calling us to. One of the reasons that I believe the church is so weak in the West is that people are such consumers in the West. Now, I'm not stupid. I know there's good churches and bad churches out there. I'm not stupid. I'm not naive to that. And I'm also not naive to the fact that sometimes it's hard to discern. It is. It really is. Some churches that I was, I was critical of in the past, I realized I was too critical of. Churches that I thought were fine, I realized, well, actually, there's some stuff that maybe is not so healthy. And the same thing could be said about us, Servants Church. But here's the reality. We need to be committed, as we said before, to our section of the wall. We need to say, okay, Lord, we're going to all gather together here and commit to saying, what are you having us do here? This is part of how we work this stuff out. This is having the mindset of Jesus, this Attitude that says your needs are, are more important than mine. Paul says it this way in, in Philippians chapter 2, quoting from the New Living Translation. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. That's not going to help. Be humble. The king, uh, uh, and um, be humble, sorry, thinking of others as better than our, yourselves. Don't look only for your own interests, but take an interest on others too. You must have the same attitude that Jesus had. What attitude? That attitude. The attitude that says, your needs are more important than mine. 
We mentioned that, that scene in Garden Gethsemane when, when Jesus says, I am, and all the soldiers fell down. Why does John record that? He records that to make it clear Jesus was in control. He could have at any time said, I'm done. You're not going to beat me. You're not going to crucify me. I'm the Son of God. He could have done it any time he wanted to. But instead, he lets himself be beaten. He allows himself to be crucified. And he says from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In other words, Father, their need of forgiveness is more important than my need to get off this cross. This is what he calls us to do towards one another. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're, we're reading this in Nehemiah. We're seeing the action of God's people. What are we going to do? What's our call to action? I'm going to call you to do three things right now. And I want to pray these things in. I want you guys to bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's pray these things in. If you're new to this Christian stuff and you're thinking, uh, I don't know how to pray, just bow your heads, close your eyes, think about the God that we're talking about. Let's pray these things in, that we would do these things. Here's the first call to action. Believe that only God can bring ultimate justice and that he can and does now intervene in unjust situations. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let's just pray right now to God for whatever, whatever unjust situations that we see. Stuff done against us, stuff done against others. It could be big scope. It could be small local scope. It could just be your life. It could be someone else's. But let's just take a minute to pray. Here's a second call to action. We need to remember the character of our God. Remember, make a conscious choice to say, Lord, I believe that you've dealt with my past through Jesus' death and resurrection. Confess that. To confess whatever sins you need to confess to the Lord if you haven't confessed before. To say, Lord, these are, these are the things that I've done. You know my guilt. And I believe that you've made, you've dealt with my past through your death and resurrection. You've made me able to be cleansed and rendered innocent. And make a conscious choice now to declare in faith what God says about himself. He controls the future. Lord, you control the future. You control the future. I want to submit myself to you because you control the future. And lastly, I want to call all of us to persevere in the good works that God has called us to today. We're about to dismiss. We're going to pray and we're going to sort of say goodbye, maybe have a cup of coffee and a cup of tea and a chat. But what's the good thing that God's calling you to do today? Don't try to think of something too over-spiritual. It could be something as simple as, I'm going to go home and make tea for the family. 
give my wife a break. Or it could be, I'm going to watch my friend's children so they can go out on a date. Or it could be, I'm going to play a game with my kids instead of watching the game. Or it could be, I'm going to go introduce myself to those new people so they know that they're loved and welcomed here. Or maybe it's, I'm going to just go get alone with God and worship. I don't know, but let the Lord show you what that is. Put his finger on what that is, a thing that he would have you do. He, the Bible says that God has created us for good works that we would walk in them. He's prepared them before. What's the good thing God wants you to do today? Father, we pray that you'd help us to be doers of your word. Lord, we know we have an enemy that wants to blind our eyes, that wants to rip us off. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Lord, would you remove the blindness from their eyes that they could see you as you are, Lord Jesus, and submit to you as you are, Lord Jesus, and believe that what you've done for them through your death and resurrection is enough. They would turn from their sin, they would look to you who died for their sin, and they would trust you with their lives. God, would you do that now? Please, Father, please. Do for them what you've done for us. And I pray for us that are your kids already, are your children already. Pray, Father, that you would help us to remember who you are, to believe that only you can bring ultimate justice and you will bring ultimate justice, to give thanks for your justification and how that deals with our past and to trust you with our future. Lord, we, we want to do this. Do this for us, Lord, we ask. I pray, Lord, that you would bless everyone here, that you would keep them, and that they would be able to testify at the end of this night. They'd be able to lay their head in the pillow and say, Lord, you gave us the grace to persevere. There were good things that you had us do today, and we thank you that you were glorified through. Please, Lord, give us that grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone says, amen, amen.